Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 19 of the Equip Project podcast. Today, Jim and I are going to be thinking about the relationship between science and Christianity. We'll be thinking about why so many people think there's a conflict between the two, and what Christianity's relationship with science should be. To set this conversation up, Jim, I want to mention a book just published by atheist scientist Jerry Coyne. It's called Faith Versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. Even the title of that book shows the apparent gulf that exists between Christianity and science. How have we got to this point, Jim? Uh, well, good morning, Ollie. Uh, the first thing to say is that Jerry Coyne's book has not been well received. Um, the Wall Street Journal's review called the book a shrill, self-righteous diatribe. Coyne follows the approach taken by most of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins. In other words, he sets up a straw man and then he tears that straw man down. So he begins by defining faith as belief in the absence of evidence. And he then spends chapters showing how stupid that, that idea is. Well, of course it's stupid. In the course of my life, I must have met many thousands of Christians, and I've never met one who believed that faith was belief in the absence of evidence. Now, we could spend an enjoyable 20 minutes throwing rocks at populists like Dawkins and Coyne, but it might be more helpful if we examine the concerns expressed by more thoughtful people. I think probably the first thing we should say is the Bible has a really positive view of scientific endeavour. In fact, it regards science as a noble pursuit. God designed this universe so that we could explore it, examine it, and in doing so, come to a better understanding of its creator. And in the early chapters of Genesis, we learn that God placed precious minerals and metals like gold in the earth under Eden. He did so knowing that one day the human race would discover mining techniques. So whenever a scientist tries their best to understand how this universe works, in fact, they're fulfilling their creatorial mandate. Psalm 19 begins with these famous words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist is saying that the physical world has been designed to give us an insight into the mind of our creator. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says a similar thing in the opening chapter of his letter to the Romans. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. We often take those words for granted. But the idea that the universe is a rationally ordered creation, that it's the product of a divine mind, that idea was revolutionary. The real significance of the thing called monotheism wasn't that there was only one God. The big idea was that God was transcendent. In other words, he was in a different category from his creation. In pagan thought, reality was a bit like a pot of minestrone soup. Okay, You just threw everything into one big system. So humanity, the dead, spirits and the gods, you stirred it all up. But in Hebrew thought, God wasn't another ingredient in the soup. God was the chef. A really compelling argument exists which traces the rise of science, and indeed the rise of Western civilization back to that one big idea. If you think about the societies of the East, in a pantheistic society, you look up at the stars and you invent astrology. But in a theistic society, you look up at the stars and you invent astronomy. 
So the scientific revolution owes a huge amount to its roots in a biblical worldview. If that's the case, then Jim, how does how did this conflict arise? How have we got to the point where Christianity and science are, are seen as being at loggerheads with one another? I think there are two big problems. The first is that society has a wrong view of faith, and the second is that society has a naive view of science. Okay, so let's structure the conversation like that. We'll examine two reasons why the conflict exists, and then we'll talk about how a right relationship between Christianity and science should look. So what is our culture's view of faith and why is it wrong is, is a good starting point. Okay. Uh, the American TV channel uh, CNN once broadcast a program on Christianity and its final words were, after all, if you've got the truth, it's not really faith at all. I nearly hurled a chaffa cake at the screen in irritation. <laughs> in popular thought, knowledge is a bit like the sat-nav in your car. At some point, when you arrive in some remote part of Ireland, the sat-nav gives up. The road has ended. It's pitch black outside. And faith, we are told, is the insane decision to drive on, hoping that the car won't go over a cliff. Yeah, that's almost like the Jerry Coyne view of faith, belief in the absence of evidence. Where did that view of faith come from? I think the philosopher called Immanuel Kant must bear a heavy weight of responsibility. He had an enormous impact on the modern world. And he set up the notion that faith only comes into play when knowledge runs out. Kant invented this elaborate system which put human reason at the very centre of reality. And that was a supremely arrogant thing to do, to turn human reason into a god and insist that the universe conform to it. Human reason is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It never seems to have occurred to Kant that nature, being the product of the divine mind, might be a whole lot smarter than he could even imagine. God is infinitely smarter than us, so it's pretty likely that his creation has intelligibility of a higher order than we could ever get our heads around. But the point is, Kant's elaborate scheme produced the strange conclusion that knowledge of God is impossible. Somebody said once that he dug this arbitrary, unbridgeable chasm between what is potentially knowable and what is not. And in so doing, he did terrible damage to the Christian claim that we can know God. So we each need to take a long shower and wash all that Kantian sand out of our heads. Here's the thing. Faith is a response to knowledge. That's why Christians are mocked for people who have seen the light. Before we became Christians, we stumbled around in the dark with no knowledge of what life was about. But now someone has switched on the lights. As C.S. Lewis brilliantly put it, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I guess knowledge of God isn't in the same category as E equals MC squared or some other scientific equation. Knowledge of God is relational. It comes to us through the experience of a relationship. That relationship between God and his people is described in various ways, creator and creature, God and man, father and child, father and grown-up son, shepherd and sheep, lover and bride, husband and wife, redeemer, saviour, friend, lord, master, counsellor, final judge. In fact, there is no true knowledge of God outside of some relationship with him. When God makes himself known to us, it is always in some relational situation. He never reveals himself as a merely theoretical proposition. That is a really important point, Ollie. Some atheists complain that God is elusive or hidden. Uh, Bertrand Russell famously said uh, he would say to God, if he ever met him, not enough evidence. Well, the answer to that charge 
is that God will never reveal himself to us as a theoretical idea that we can consider just with our minds. He tells us that if we are to find him, we must seek him with all our hearts. And the heart in the Bible represents the whole person. So all of me must go on this journey to God, not just my mind. All of me, including all my moral baggage. It seems pretty obvious to me that if we are to encounter God, we will only do so on his terms. And his terms are clear. Knowledge of him will always be relational because he is a person and you are a person. He simply won't permit a creature to reduce him to an idea. To go down that road is to follow Immanuel Kant. When you think about it, it's, it's plain daft to embark on a journey to find God if you have already decided that your reason will dictate terms to him. By all means, use your reason, but have the humility not to turn it into a little god. The key idea which the Enlightenment thinkers rejected was the idea that God might reveal himself to us. But in fact, Christianity roots its knowledge of God in history. The Bible says that God has revealed himself to us in history, most of all through the Incarnation, when God entered his own universe in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. When we encounter Christ, we are being given knowledge of what God is like. We see his kindness and justice and love and fairness. And so faith is the morally appropriate response to that knowledge. That's right. Let's just take a practical example here because we're, we're being widely abstract. We'll invent a Christian believer called Michael. Okay? Uh, Michael was raised in a loving Christian home. He became a Christian as a teenager, and he's just found out that his mom has stage four breast cancer. Now, because Michael encountered the truth about reality at the cross of Christ when he became a Christian, because by the light of the cross he has knowledge about the nature of reality, he has been presented with evidence that God is uh, loving and fair and just and powerful. So he can take that objective evidence into his personal situation and trust God for his mum's future. He's not trusting in an outcome, he's trusting a person he has come to know. So his faith is a response to knowledge, uh, to evidence, if you like. We should also say, Jim, that Michael's faith is not simply in objective evidence. Over the years, God, the Holy Spirit, has also built first-person subjective knowledge of God's love into Michael's heart. So he knows in both subjective and objective terms that he is loved and protected by God. Sure. We've thought so far about how misunderstood the concept of Christian faith is. But the second reason you suggested for this conflict with science is about the nature of of science itself. I think you said that many people today have a naive view of science. If you read school textbooks on science, the job of the scientist is described a bit like a journey from uncertainty to certainty. I mean, that is a bit too simplistic. Uh, in 1962, before I was born, uh, an American physicist called Thomas Kuhn published a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He's the guy who invented that awful term, paradigm shift, uh, which management consultants have used for the past 50 years. You love that term, Jim. That's exactly <laughs> the kind of term you'd use. <laughs> <laughs> Only when I'm bluffing. Uh, Kuhn sees the history of science as, as a series of phases. Okay, So imagine in each phase there is a shared paradigm, a sort of shared intellectual framework. Uh, it's a set of basic assumptions about the way the world works. And so normal science is therefore seen as a sort of puzzle-solving activity within that framework. And scientists worry away at anomalies in the prevailing understanding of how things work. And over time, the difficulties with that prevailing framework become so great that a crisis occurs and this so-called paradigm shift happens. 
And so a new intellectual framework, a new set of assumptions about the way things are becomes established in the scientific community, and so the process starts all over again. Now, I know that sounds horribly abstract, so let me quickly illustrate it. We used to think that the sun went round the earth, and for a long time, people used Aristotle's cosmology as their intellectual framework. Uh, that uh, you know, the, the, the minor tiff between Pope Urban IV uh, and Galileo uh, was not an argument over anything in the Bible, it was an argument over Aristotle's cosmology. But anyway, that crisis then occurred and the paradigm shifted, and we went to a heliocentric universe. An even better example is found by looking at Newtonian mechanics. So for centuries, scientists made incredible progress with the framework created by Newton. But then along came quantum mechanics, and the basic assumptions in the scientific community went through a revolution. Now, I have summarised Kuhn's theory in a horribly crude and inaccurate way, but hopefully you get the point. It's simply naive to see science as a simple collection of facts about the world, facts which lead us into greater and greater certainty. The really scary thing about Kuhn's insight is that science is a social phenomenon. There is an establishment, which is overthrown every so often by revolutionaries. So we can't ignore the power politics and the human dynamics within the scientific community. Once the paradigm becomes established, it actually starts to build and direct the scientific endeavour itself. Now why does that all matter? Because at the moment, much of the scientific community is dominated by a single paradigm, sometimes called the Neo-Darwinian Evolutionary Paradigm. The theory of evolution is best understood as the intellectual framework in which many scientific disciplines operate. Now, of course, a vast number of scientific insights uh, which come under the umbrella of evolution are obviously true. No sensible person would argue against the evidence that self-replicating organisms can adapt. And no sensible person would dispute the reuse of solutions that are shared between organisms. But evolution is much more than a collection of scientific theories and facts. It is the intellectual framework, it's the paradigm that underpins nearly all of modern science. The central idea is that nature invented itself with no help from an external designer. And it is that idea which is driving science, not just biology and geology and paleontology, but anthropology and psychology and medicine and sociology. It's the established way of thinking about the world. This is where your point about naivety comes in, isn't it, Jim? Because most people assume that science simply isn't bothered with religious or philosophical ideas. It just solves the puzzles about how physical reality works. But what you're arguing is that neo-Darwinism comes preloaded with an anti-religious bias. Is, is that the point you're making? I'd rather call it an anti-designer bias. I, I suppose I'm, I'm looking to persuade any atheist listening to me now. Because it just seems to me there's something wrong when a rational discussion about the possibility of an intelligent designer is shut down in the scientific community. God is not allowed even a foot in the door. To even raise the possibility of design is to somehow let science down. And that prejudice just seems close-minded to me. Why can we not have a perfectly calm, interesting conversation about the mathematical characteristics of a design system and then apply those characteristics to the universe itself? The problem is, if we're being real, we're up against the power structures of an establishment. Biologists used to be the poor cousin of the hard sciences. They weren't physicists or chemists. They went around counting butterflies and categorising things. And then Darwin handed them the keys of life. 
So biologists today are worried, wrongly I think, that any talk of an intelligent designer will rob them of their central role. Out of fear, the intelligent design view is caricatured as an anti-intellectual, God did it, no more questions please, position. So we shouldn't be naive in our understanding of the politics within the scientific community. The popular notion of Christianity among some scientists is that the Christian God is a God of the gaps. The divine hypothesis is only needed to fill in the gaps in our scientific knowledge. As the gaps get filled in, God disappears. But Christians don't actually believe in a God of the gaps, do we? No. Some atheist scientists are very fond of an analogy which goes something like this. Suppose I arranged a fight between a tiger and a shark, okay? And I asked you to place bets on who would win, uh, assuming betting was uh, allowable morally, okay? I'd definitely go shark. Okay. The tiger or the shark? Well, you go shark. <laughs> well, before you part it with any money, uh, you should have asked the obvious question. Where would the fight take place? I didn't think about that at all. Now, you see, if the fight took place in the sea, then, of course, our money would be on the shark. But if the fight occurred on dry land, the tiger would win uh, paws down. So men like Professor Richard Dawkins say that religions are like the shark and science is the tiger. The shark swims in an ocean of ignorance and superstition uh, and there it reigns supreme. But unfortunately for the religious shark, the ocean of ignorance is drying up and so the scientific tiger will eventually enjoy its fish supper. It's sometimes said that God is only needed to explain away the gaps in our knowledge in the world. So uh, we're told in ancient times no one could explain what thunder was. They didn't know about pressure differentials. So they explained thunder by saying that the gods were angry. But then modern science came along and filled in that gap in our knowledge. And nowadays, when we hear thunder, we rarely think that the gods are angry. So the need for the god hypothesis starts to disappear. Now, I have to admit to being mildly irritated by that sort of argument, because I've never met a single thoughtful Christian who believes in a god of the gaps. We believe in the god of the whole show. The universe is an amazing place. Uh, in, in last week's episode, I bored you uh, by talking about the complexity of the human cell. Well, all that complexity increases my faith in God. That new knowledge fills me with an even greater awe of the divine designer who created uh, amazing little nanorobots. So I am very grateful to the thousands of scientists who have analysed the genome, who have unpicked the mysteries of the human cell. They have increased my faith in God. That's because Christian faith stands on the firm ground of knowledge. It doesn't swim in the murky waters of ignorance. Christians don't believe in a God of the gaps. We believe in the God of the whole show. Yeah, I, f I fully agree with that, Jim. I think it's a really important point to make. So you're now betting on... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to change the tiger, actually, having thought about it. Especially if it's on land. <laughs> in your last point, you push back against the commonly held view that science must, by its nature be naturalistic. Philosophical naturalism must be assumed. So if I understand you correctly, there are some genuine conflicts with science today. Yes, I think there are, but they are much smaller than most people think. I don't personally think that the Bible tells us how old the universe is, so the thought that the universe might be 13.8 billion years old doesn't cause me to lose any sleep. But that's not to say that we should roll over completely and never have the courage to challenge the scientific community particularly when bad philosophy is presented as a scientific paradigm. The whole question of origins is really complex, Jim, and maybe we'll talk about that subject in a later episode. But to finish off, what should the relationship between Christianity and science actually look like? 
Well, it's popular today to believe that there are two ways of thinking about the world. There is scientific thinking, and then there is religious mumbo-jumbo. So inside the circle of reason, people wear white lab coats, they have civilised conversations about mathematics and engineering. Outside the circle of reason, religious loons roam like barbarians, foaming at the mouth as they talk about spiritual worlds that are a product of their own deranged imaginations. Now that um, division is nonsense, of course. Healthy scientific thinking begins with the recognition that science is only a subset of rational thinking. It's only a subset of rational thinking. So I'm going to give you four quick questions. You don't need to answer them, but uh, they're rhetorical. Number one, what did you have for breakfast last Tuesday? Secondly, if A is not B, why does it follow that B is not A? Number three, did Napoleon actually exist? Uh, These are the most random questions you've ever been asked. (laughs) Number four, how does it feel to experience a toothache? Now, the point is, you can't use science to answer any of those questions. But you can have an entirely rational discussion about all of them. The idea that all truth is scientific truth is a nonsense. That statement can't be measured. It can't be proven mathematically. So by its own definition, it must be false. It's a self-refuting statement. So you don't have to choose between the scientifically provable theories and superstition. Things like history and philosophy and theology are rational enterprises. That more humble view of science helps us tackle the question of miracles. The question, can a miracle happen? It's not a scientific question. In fact, it's a worldview question, as I think we discussed in a previous episode. It's a theological question, because miracles aren't magic. A Christian says that a miracle is an exceptional event injected by God into nature, but he always does it for a moral purpose. I believe that's your definition of it, Jim, and I think it's a very helpful one. Miracles are like signposts that point to a theological truth. So a perfectly rational conversation can be had about the philosophical and theological assumptions that underpin a worldview, which allows for miracles like that. That's that's right. So the um, plausibility of a miracle uh, depends actually on the coherence and explanatory power of the overall worldview in which it is situated. So that point about miracles raises the main reason why Christianity and science should adopt a position of mutual respect. Because science can't tell us the foundations on which reality is built. So as a thought experiment, suppose the next Einstein discovered the theory of everything, Okay, the next Sheldon Cooper, something that joins up relativity and quantum mechanics. So what? We would still be in the dark about the nature of reality. That's because science can only explain the how question. It can't answer the why question. So imagine that there's a large chocolate cake sitting on this table. I knew we'd get back to cakes. It was inevitable that that would happen. (laughs) Only briefly, I promise you. (laughs) Now, we could ask a group of scientists to explain the the thing's existence. The chemists could analyse the various components in the icing. The physicists could fire small amounts of cake at high speed through the Large Hadron Collider. And they could explain to us how the cake was made. But they could never explain to us why it came into existence. Now, we shouldn't fire our scientists for being incompetent. Their inability to explain to us why the cake is here is a limitation of science itself. Science explains the how, not the why, of existence. Now that thought is a little terrifying, because what applies to cakes also applies to human beings. Why do you exist? Science will never be able to explain the answer to that question. The answer to that question could only be encountered if it was revealed to you. So, I reveal to you that my metaphorical cake is for uh, my birthday, and you now know both how it exists and why it exists. 
I was giving a talk on, on, on something to do with this at a lunch bar in the Ulster University about a year ago. And I asked an atheist student afterwards, why do you exist? Christianity says that the answer to that question has been revealed to us. God has told us why we exist, and he has given us the answer primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons Christ came was to help us understand our own existence. Why do you matter? God made you, and he loves you. You matter because God finds you valuable. And a Christian is someone who has discovered that knowledge. A Christian is someone who knows why they exist. Well, the student stared at me for quite a while and he said, I never really thought about that before. Most young people today have been raised in a culture that tells them that science has all the answers. They've been taught that there is nothing more to reality than physical stuff. It's all just atoms banging into other atoms. But deep down, we know that is not true. Qualities like goodness and justice and love aren't just social norms. They aren't just little man-made inventions to help our genes survive. Love and justice are true things. They're beautiful and objectively real. And deep down, we know that we are more than a collection of squishy tissue. So, science can tell you how you exist. But only Christianity can tell you why you exist. So we need both to explain the human condition to us. Thanks, Jim. I think we've covered a lot of ground in that episode, and we'll definitely come back and do an episode specifically on origins at some point. Next week, we reach our 20th episode, which is an exciting milestone for us. And we put out a vote on Instagram between climate change and mental health. And the results were a fairly resounding win for mental health. Um, So next week's episode is going to be focusing on mental health and uh, particularly looking at Uh, we'll look particularly i think at depression and anxiety various forms of anxiety excellent i think that'll be really helpful for a lot of people but fear not those who were keen on climate change we will address that at some point Um, and hopefully i can persuade jim to do one on veganism as well that's also uh, also a goal of mine Um, but anyway thank you for listening to episode 19 of the equip project podcast Um, it's been great having your company and we look forward to seeing you again next week